0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivry. Today, we're sitting down with Amos Oz. There's no other living Israeli author who's as well-known around the world as Amos Oz. Inside Israel, he's one of the country's most respected cultural figures. He's lived a tumultuous life. When he was 10 years old, he witnessed the founding of the Jewish state— When he was 12 years old, his mother committed suicide. When he was 15, he joined a kibbutz and he changed his last name to Oz, which is Hebrew for strength. Eventually, he left the kibbutz for the desert because of his son's asthma. But in his newest book of short stories, called Between Friends, he revisits the early years of the kibbutz when the collective farms were still a wild ideological experiment. Vox Tablet contributor Daniel Estrin sat with Amos Oz in his home in Tel Aviv, for a far-ranging discussion about his new book and about his life.
1: Israel is not a country of celebrity worship, but there's still this aura that surrounds Amos Oz. He's a household name in Israel, and even though he hasn't won the Nobel Prize for Literature yet, he's rumored to be on the shortlist every year. You can tell he does his best to protect his privacy in this country of little privacy. There's no name listed on his buzzer at the entrance to his apartment building, no name on his mail slot either. In the elevator, I ask a young kid, you know that Amos Oz lives in your building? Okay. Yeah, he says. He sees him in the elevator sometimes. Have you read anything of his, I ask? My mom's got a tale of love and darkness, he says. That's Amos Oz's autobiography, his most celebrated work. Hello. Hello. How are you? Hi, good to see you. Please come in. Thank you so much. Can
2: I offer you a cup of coffee or something cold to drink?
1: Water would be great. Water. Yeah. Okay. Amos Oz lives on the top floor in a quiet, leafy district of North Tel Aviv. His front door opens to a cozy living room. he calls it the library. It's got a panoramic view of the city and the blue haze of the Mediterranean Sea. The library is floor to ceiling with books, plus an aquarium squeezed in the middle, and a cat named Freddy. Any particular book on your bookshelf that you,
2: you have here is your favorite? Only editions of A Tale of Love and Darkness in uh, 52 or 53 editions in 30 countries.
1: What are some of the languages that it's been translated into? Well, there is a
2: pirate edition in the Kurdish language, for instance. There is a translation into Hungarian, Bulgarian, Romanian, Czech, Greek. It's translated into many, many languages, over 30 countries.
1: Amos Oz is now 74 years old. He's of modest height, his hair is thin and mostly white, and he carries a pen and a fine-toothed comb in his breast pocket. In this interview, you'll hear that his breathing is heavy. But he has a lot to say about his love of Hebrew, his predictions for Israel's future, even a little bit of celebrity gossip. I started by asking him about his recent move to Tel Aviv. You... uh have moved here recently from Arad. I mean, you you grew up in Jerusalem. Um, you you spent, I think, 30 years uh, in a kibbutz. Mm-hmm. From there you moved to uh, the desert town of Arad, and, and now you're here in Tel Aviv. Uh, why the move now?
2: Time to be closer to the children. Arad is very far away, and our children all live in or around Tel Aviv, so my wife and I have decided that it's time to live closer to our kids.
1: I read that you, uh, when you used to live in Arad, you you had a daily routine uh, walking in the desert in the morning and and then sitting down to write. Um, I'm wondering what what is your daily routine now that you're here in Tel Aviv?
2: I still get up at five o'clock every morning and I drink a cup of coffee and I sit myself by my desk before six and start writing. And I work solidly for five or six hours, then I take a break. I have lunch, I take a little siesta, and in the afternoon I go back to my study to destroy what I have written in the morning.
1: (laughs) Have you destroyed anything today? A little bit, yes. Um, I'm wondering if you get a lot of correspondence from your readers, from people around the world. Too much. I get uh,
2: many letters from readers. Some of them are very moving, some of them are very personal, some of them are heartwarming, People who have read The Tale of Love and Darkness, for instance, write to me, I have listened to your story, now it's your turn to listen to mine. And then they write me their entire life story, and sometimes these are very exciting stories. And I make a point of trying to answer each and every one of them, at least in a couple of lines.
1: Let's talk about um, Between Friends, your new collection of short stories. Uh, The stories are intertwined. They're about one cast of characters living on a fictional kibbutz in in the 1950s in Israel. Um, I think they're they're quiet, they're poetic, um, sometimes funny, um, mostly sad. Why did you want to write about the kibbutz? Well, thank you for the
2: compliments. I have lived in a kibbutz for more than 30 years. And although I left the kibbutz 27 years ago, I still go back there in my dreams at least once a week. Good dreams, bad dreams, trivial dreams. I dream about the kibbutz very often. This signaled to me that it's time to go back and have a distant look at the kibbutz of the 1950s as I found it when I came there first at the age of 15 to uh, start my life anew. And in between friends, I tried to watch the kibbutz not with nostalgia, not with anger, but with precision and
1: compassion. Uh, Are any of the characters in the book based on um, some of the people that you lived with on your kibbutz? I never do that. I never use real-life models.
2: I used to have a friend in kibbutz Huldah who claimed that each time he walks in front of my window, he stops for a moment and combs his hair so that if he gets into one of my stories, he will get there with his hair neatly combed. But this is just not the way I work. I don't, I don't use real-life models, ever.
1: The stories in, in the book refer to the kibbutz elements, uh, life, uh, elements of kibbutz life that are long gone. Things like uh, the children's house where children live um, and sleep at night instead of with their parents, and kibbutz-wide votes that decide where a person goes to college, what you study, what job you have, uh, if you may travel abroad. Today, all those things seem to me a little bit anachronistic and, and maybe a little ridiculous. Um, you don't spare any criticism of those um, in the stories, but um, do you have any fondness for those things?
2: Literature is always about bygone times. It's always looking back in time with a certain perspective. I look at bygone life which no longer exists. And as I said, I look at it without nostalgia, but without anger either. I look at it with criticism and with compassion. I look at it with curiosity. I look at it with fascination. And I look at it with a certain smile.
1: One of my favorite stories in the collection is called Two Women. And uh, it's about a man on the kibbutz who leaves his wife and moves in with another kibbutz member named Ariella. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading just one selection from that story. I could do that. Right when they start their correspondence. In her mailbox, which was on the
2: far left side of the mailbox cabinet, near the entrance to the dining hall, Ariella found a folded note in Osnath's round, unhurried handwriting. Boaz always forgets to take his blood pressure pills. He needs to take them in the morning, end at night before bed, and in the morning he has to take half a cholesterol pill. He shouldn't put black pepper and a lot of salt on his salads, and he should eat low-fat cheese and no steak. He is allowed fish and chicken, but not strongly spiced, and he shouldn't gorge himself on sweet or snut. P.S. He should drink less black coffee.
1: And then that correspondence continues into um, uh, notes back and forth between the two women.
2: I got a letter from a reader, a female reader, who gave me the greatest possible compliment. She said, only a woman could have written this story. I couldn't expect any better.
1: That is a theme that reoccurs in in the book. Um, Wives and husbands on the kibbutz leaving each other uh, for other kibbutz members. that that idea of a tight knit society on the kibbutz, um, where you know everyone knows each other's dirty business, uh, like their love lives, and I'm wondering if you think there are things that still exist in Israel from those those days, um, the old days of the kibbutz.
2: Love life is not dirty business at all. And as to your question, yes, there are many kibbutz genes in Israeli society. There is a certain directness, a certain lack of hierarchies, a latent anarchism in Israeli society, which I regard as the heritage of the kibbutz, and I think it's a good heritage. I like it.
1: Some of the characters in, on this fictional kibbutz lost their parents in the Holocaust. Um, some of them didn't. But all of them came to the kibbutz to create a new life. I think many of them seem a little repressed in some ways. Do you think that people are unhappier on, on the kibbutz? Happiness is a big word happiness is a,
2: as a human condition is something i never believed in i think there are moments of happiness i don't think there is a lasting happiness i think this is unthinkable in the jewish tradition we have no less than six hebrew words for <coughs> excuse me no less than six hebrew words for joy simcha alitzut alizut hedva, tzahala but no proper word for happiness and perhaps rightly so Joy is something that comes and goes. The idea of everlasting happiness is alien to me. I don't believe in it. I believe in moments of joy. Yes, I write many of many times about repressed characters, about characters who have made great sacrifices in order to establish the kibbutz. The founding fathers and mothers of the kibbutz community believed that they can change human nature in one blow. If only everyone does the same work, lives in the same quarters, dress the same clothes, share everything, eats the same food, then pettiness and jealousy and selfishness and gossip and envy will go away and disappear. This was naive. It was unrealistic. Human nature is almost unchangeable. Certainly cannot be changed in one blow and in one generation. They wanted to change, to change human nature immediately and at one blow. This had a certain cost, and this cost meant certain self-sacrifice and
1: certain repression. I wonder if you think that um, Israelis are still trying to remake themselves, or is something different?
2: No, I don't think so. I think this uh, immature ambition to change human nature in one blow is gone. What has replaced
1: it here? Well,
2: a certain kind of hedonism, uh, middle-class values, passion, noisiness, pushiness, warm-heartedness. Everything that is very Mediterranean is true about Israeli society. It's a very Mediterranean society. People are talkative, open, heartwarming, hearty, and selfish, and greedy at the same time.
1: Do you feel Mediterranean at all?
2: Yes, I feel very Mediterranean. I think I'm a Mediterranean kind of man.
1: If I've done my math correctly, you're 74 years old now? Yes. Your first book of short stories was published in 1965. You witnessed the founding of your country. You've lived through a lot of change. And now there are new generations of Israeli writers. Do you ever feel anachronistic in Israeli society? Um, To what extent do you almost always represent a another era that or or other ideals that don't exist anymore
2: I never regarded myself as a representative I'm a storyteller not a representative Uh, whether my stories and my novels reflect a certain Israeli reality or not is not for me to judge but I'm not in the business of representing I'm not a sociologist I don't know how many Israelis are there or were there who resemble the characters in my stories and in my novels. I don't know and I don't care. This is not my business to portray Israeli society. I portray individuals. I don't
1: portray society. If you could think of, uh, of an Israeli writer whom you would recommend people to read, uh, maybe from a, a newer generation, a younger generation, do, do you have one in mind? I have
2: many in mind, and I will be unfair to some of them if I mention just one name. But I strongly recommend your readers to read Edgar Keret. I think he is an excellent writer. He is unexpected and full of surprises.
1: You may not remember, but eight years ago um, I took a class with you at Ben-Gurion University in southern Israel. Um, It was Shakespeare's Othello. And I remember each week you stood in front of the class and you spoke for three hours without notes. And... My recollection of that time was was as if you were reciting a, a novel. Um, I really felt that it was like you were speaking the first draft, not the first draft of a, of, of something, but the final draft. Um, the Hebrew, the way that you spoke Hebrew was, was different than the way that I had uh, heard other Israelis speak Hebrew. First of all, how would you describe your use of language, and do you feel that you're filling uh, some kind of linguistic obligation in your work.
2: Well, thank you for the compliment, but my classes are never a first draft. I prepare and prepare very thoroughly for each class, for each lecture. And it's true that I often speak without notes, but I speak without notes because I prepare long and hard at home before I come to class. Yes, I feel a particular obligation uh, toward language. Language is my craft. Language is my musical instrument. I treat the language the way the the violinist treats the violin. And uh, for me, the most important thing in my writing and in my teaching is precision. Any favorite Hebrew words? No, I can't point particular words as being my favorite Hebrew words. I love the Hebrew language, and I'm very biased about it. I could speak about the Hebrew language for hours and hours. I think it's a wonderful musical instrument. I think modern Hebrew has many things in common with Elizabethan English. I think a writer or a poet of contemporary Hebrew can still take very daring liberties with the language. Can even legislate into the language because Hebrew is like melting lava, like an erupting volcano. And one can still leave a certain imprint on the language.
1: Well, I know that your father, first of all, uh, invented a number of words. My great uncle invented a number of words. Your great uncle? Yes, my great uncle. He invented
2: a number of Hebrew words, and uh, I have invented a couple of Hebrew words, and I'm very proud of them.
1: Can you tell us which ones?
2: It's difficult to uh, translate them into English because they don't exist into English. But one of them is the verb to rhinocerize. Derivate, to rhinocerize? rhinocerize? a derivation from the noun rhinoceros. Uh, that was a play by the French playwright Ionesco, the Romanian French playwright Ionesco, called The Rhinoceros. It's about a society where people are becoming more and more conformist and they adjust themselves to the herd every day. And this play is called The Rhinoceros. And it was played very successfully in Israel in the 1960s. So in one of my articles, I invented the verb to rhinocerize or the noun rhinocerized describe a man who becomes conformist, who changes his or her opinions in order to adjust to a certain general mood or to a certain general trend.
1: That's lehit karnef, right? karnef, that's right. Do you ever hear anyone use it in, out on in the street and think, that's mine? It came
2: back to me from a taxi driver who had no idea that I was the proud parent of this word. Uh, I felt very proud and very happy. It was as close to immortality as a mortal can get to have a word which you have invented coming back to you from a taxi driver. That's amazing. Do you
1: remember the conversation?
2: Yes, we talked about politics. We talked about a certain politician and the taxi driver said that this politician is completely rhinocerized.
1: (laughs) Would you mind giving one more example of a, of a, a word that you invented?
2: Yes, we have a Hebrew noun for star, and I have invented the adjective starry, starry night. It didn't exist in Hebrew, mekochav.
1: Okay, I'm so curious. Tell, tell me one more.
2: No, no, these are the two words which are institutionalized into the language. There may be an occasional other, occasional other ones, but they are not part of the blood cycle of the language. These two became
1: part of the blood cycle of the language. Back to the book, Between Friends. The opening story and the closing story um, center around death. The opening story, the, the very first scene is about the kibbutz gardener who likes to tell uh, he likes to tell discouraging news. And uh, one of the first things he says is uh, such and such a writer has died. Um, I wonder if that was a little wink from you uh, as a writer. Do, do you think much about death?
2: It's time to think about death. I'm 74. Of course, I think very often about death. I think every human being should be prepared for death. And I think there is part of life which should be devoted to preparation for death. I think this helps you to knock everything into the right proportion. The last story, Esperanto, is about the death of an idealist and to some extent about the death of the old-time kibbutz, the old-style kibbutz. And the evolution of the new type of kibbutz, more tolerant, more soft, more uh, receptive toward individual weaknesses.
1: What was the old kibbutz like, um, if not tolerant and receptive to weakness?
2: It was extremely demanding. It insisted that everyone has to change, that everyone has to control their ambitions, their appetites, their desires their personal wishes. It was a very ascetic society in the 1950s and before.
1: Is there any moment that stands out in your mind from your experience on a kibbutz, emblematic of that old kibbutz? There are many such
2: moments. I remember a fiery, fiery argument in the Secretariat of Kibbutz Hulda when I applied for one working day each week for my writing at the very beginning of my career as a writer. And there was a huge debate in the kibbutz committee. And some people said yes, and some people said no, it's a dangerous precedence. Everyone can call themselves an artist, and then who will milk the cows? And it's not for the committee to decide who is an artist and who isn't an artist. And there was even one man who said that young Amos may be the new Tolstoy, but he's too young to be a writer. Let him work in the field until he's 40, and then he knows something about life, and he can write. Maybe he was right.
1: Did they eventually give you a few more days to write a week?
2: First, one day a week, then two days a week. Then when I wrote a bestseller and became a source of income to the communal uh, treasury, three days a week. Today,
1: do you ever go back to visit old
2: friends at the kibbutz? Quite often, yes. I have many dear friends in Huldah, and my wife and I
1: go there from time to time. Could you imagine yourself ever living there again?
2: I think it's too late in life to go back to the kibbutz, and it's a different kibbutz today. But if I had to choose between life in the kibbutz of the 1950s and life in today's kibbutz, kibbutz, which is much softer, much milder, much more tolerant, I would prefer today's kibbutz to the kibbutz of the 1950s.
1: Amos Oz, in your career, you've come to be known not just for your fiction writing, but for political writing too. Uh, You've been very critical of Israel's occupation of the West Bank. How optimistic are you about seeing peace in your lifetime? I don't know if
2: I'm optimistic about my own life expectancy. I don't know how much I still have to live. But I believe that peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians is unavoidable. How soon it will happen, I don't know. It's difficult to be a prophet in the land of the prophets, so it's too much competition in the prophecy business around here. But it's unavoidable, and it will come.
1: Speaking of prophets, you are among a small handful of writers in Israel whom uh, some people... Call prophets. Um, I've heard that expression here and there. Um, When you write an op-ed article, it's on the front page of the newspaper. What
2: does that role mean to you? I never regarded myself as a prophet. I can't read the future, and I don't have any particular wisdom which other people don't have. I have imagination, and I use it in my political thinking. I ask myself from time to time, how would I feel if I were a Palestinian under Israeli occupation? I asked myself from time to time, how would I fully feel if I were an Orthodox Jew? I asked myself from time to time, how would I feel if I were an Oriental Sephardi Jew in a developing town? And I use my imagination in my political manifestations. But no, I never regarded myself as a prophet.
1: Do people argue with you in, in the taxi, in, in the street, um, about your views? And how? In Arad, I used to sit myself
2: in a street cafe and pick up an argument with strangers who recognize me because I'm on, on television from time to time. And I like those arguments very much. I like to be involved in a passionate argument with total strangers.
1: You never get sick of that here?
2: No, it fascinates me. It intrigues me.
1: Your autobiographical novel, A Tale of Love and Darkness, uh, was translated to Arabic as you were showing me on your bookshelf behind you here. Um, The translation was paid for by a Palestinian uh, whose father and son were both killed in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He said Arabs needed to read your book to, in a way, understand Israel's soul. And I want to ask you, what books do you think Israelis or anyone should read to understand the Palestinian soul?
2: They should read Palestinian literature, period. Poetry, especially poetry but also Palestinian prose. They should read Arabic prose. They should read Lebanese and Syrian and Egyptian prose. They should read as much as they can read. And unfortunately, we don't have enough in a Hebrew translation.
1: Any writer you want to point out especially? Well,
2: obviously, the greatest uh, Arab writer of the 20th century is the late Nagib Mahfouz. And I was a great admirer of Nagib Mahfouz. I have even been in an indirect contact with him before the establishment of peace between Israel and Egypt, but we never met.
1: Wow, what, what was that contact like, if you can talk about it? That was an
2: American journalist who interviewed me and interviewed him and then exchanged messages or passed on messages from Mahfouz to me and from me to Mahfouz.
1: A little bit more celebrity gossip. I understand that uh, the actress Natalie Portman is going to be uh, writing the screen adaptation of A Tale of Love and Darkness, um, which she plans to direct and star in. What's your involvement in that project? Very little. I read the script which Natalie
2: Portman wrote uh, for A Tale of Love and Darkness. I liked it, but uh, that doesn't mean much because reading a film script is like reading musical notes if you are not a musician you don't really know what the music is going to be like
1: Was it important for you to to sign off to make sure that uh, you'd be comfortable with the adaptation before she moved on? No, it's going to be her
2: movie not my movie and I give her perfect freedom to to adapt and to change and to abbreviate it's her film not mine it's based on my novel but it's going to be her film Amos Oz, thanks so much. Thank you for having me.
0: That was reporter Daniel Estrin speaking with Israeli writer Amos Oz in Oz's apartment in Tel Aviv. Amos Oz's new book is called Between Friends. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I recommend it. Get a copy. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.